you got to keep busy. You got to meet people. You you got to get out to the, the world. You can't stay home, watch television, and read. Do what I'm doing. Get out there. Hello, and welcome to a conversation about aging. That was Jim Marden passing on a little bit of advice. He is 98 years old, so I'd say he knows what he's talking about. I'm Diane Atwood, producer and host of the blog and podcast Catching Health. Until COVID-19 hit, I'd been traveling around my home state of Maine, interviewing people 60 and older about their lives, past and present, for a special podcast project I call Conversations About Aging. Back in early March, Jim and I sat at the dining room table in his condo overlooking the city of Portland, Maine, on the eastern promenade. Jim is a born storyteller, and he has lots of stories to tell. They'll make you laugh, make you think, and some may make you cry. But mostly, I think you'll be inspired by his positive outlook on life, even during these difficult times. Ever since he was in high school back in the 1940s, Jim has volunteered in one way or another. For the past 30 years or so, since his retirement, he's been a faithful volunteer at Maine Medical Center, logging more than 11,000 hours of service. Before the pandemic, he volunteered three days a week at 98, greeting people visiting an outpatient orthopedics practice. It's a job he loved doing, and it's one he obviously did well. So I'm going to read this email that they got at the main health office where you volunteer. I visited this office today, and I had the loveliest experience. One of your volunteers met me at the front door with the most wonderful smile and was so friendly. He was an older gentleman, and he made my entire day. Your face, you've got a big, <laughs> wide grin. That makes you happy, doesn't it? Right, right. That's what I do every day. And it's the same thing every day. And they'll leave saying, you have a beautiful smile. But along with the smile, it's the whole thing that goes with it. It's not just the smile alone. It's yeah. the whole atmosphere. And the fact that at 98, you just had a birthday too, right? January 23rd, did I see was your birthday? Correct. Happy birthday. I think that's how I caught wind of you because Maine Health wished you happy birthday on Facebook. Right. And I saw it and I said, oh my goodness. Right when I saw that you were 98, <laughs> I said, I need to track this man down and interview him for conversations about aging. So they found you. You're easy to find. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so three days a week, you yes. go there. Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday. And my girlfriend goes there, too. Oh, there's a whole other story. I didn't know you had a girlfriend. Yeah, she works in radiology. She takes the people out and changes their gowns and things. Oh, how old is she? 93. And is that where you met? We met in Maine Med. When my wife made me go to Maine Med when I retired to be doing something, they decided that I should be doing patients mail. And Lucy was doing patients mail and she broke me in. And since that time, we've been in the hospital off and on doing different things together. And after my wife died and her husband died years later, we finally got together and I live here and she lives in Yama. Lucy, her name is Lucy? Lucy, yeah. That's a beautiful name. Yeah. All right, well, I wanna talk more about this in a second. I'd like to ask you first what it does for you to be able to go out and work. I mean, you're a volunteer, but you're working. Right. What does it do for you? 
You can't believe the number of people come in who are elderly or are getting ready to retire or something, and they're asking me how I do it. I said, you've got to keep busy. You've got to meet people. You've you got to get out to the, the world. You can't stay home and watch television and read. Do what I'm doing. Get out there. What do you think it is? Do you think that people, some people as they age, they just lose their drive, their motivation, they give up? I think it's, it's, it's the atmosphere they live in and who they live with. So what do you think is the best kind of living situation? If they live alone at home, they're apt to get into a rut and not feel like going out by themselves. Unless they have friends that will do things with them, they aren't moved to do anything. Well, you live alone. But I have a girlfriend. Makes a difference. We, we both do things together. You need to have somebody you can do things with. Nothing's good alone. I don't care what you do alone. It's, 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 it's lonely. The word for it is lonely. And if, you're, and if you're alone, it gets worse and worse. So I've talked to some people, not necessarily interviewed them, but talked to people who are older who say, well, there'll never be anybody like my husband or wife. I don't want to meet anybody else. Oh, no, I don't want romance. You know, they have a billion excuses. But what I hear you talking about more than anything is companionship. Right. Male or female, it doesn't matter. Just to have somebody that you can right. share things with. If you live alone, you got to find somebody else. They may be there alone, but, but the two of you together is what you've got to have to keep staying alive. What do you and Lucy enjoy doing? We play cards. We're doing puzzles right now. We go to the movies. We just enjoy each other. Every day we enjoy each other. I had a gentleman that I knew years ago. I did some stories about him. His name is Fred Hale, and he lived to be 104. And uh, he said I'm, I'm going to try for 112, so that's okay. Right. You want to set real records. <laughs> uh, he said his secret was bee pollen. He did bee pollen every day, and he also saw his chiropractor. Yeah. But he had a girlfriend. Right. And uh, they would call each other up. They would take turns, I think, every morning to make sure that uh, they were every alive. Morning. Every morning we had to work and we call. Yeah. Make sure we're alive. <laughs> well, you've got to have a a healthy perspective. You seem like an optimistic kind of a person. Positively. <laughs> <laughs> always have been. So from day one, I've always been optimistic. Never was, uh, well, I didn't lose a day of school. I didn't lose a day of work. I've always been healthy. But it's your attitude. You, when you say optimistic, the whole thing is going to be just with it. But you acknowledge that you are 98 years old. You can't deny it, right? You acknowledge it. I admit to it. But you don't dwell on it. We realize that looking at me because I don't act like a 98-year-old. So when you put your head down on the pillow at night? I go to sleep. And when you wake up? I think of what I'm going to do today. See, I think that's a key issue. You think about, all right, what am I going to do today? Right. And what do you do on the days when you're not volunteering? Well, every day I'm going to end up in Yarmouth, no matter what day. If, if we meet Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday. We meet at the parking lot. It was the building I work in. Mm -hmm. The rest of the week, we, we call each other at 8 o'clock, and by noontime, I'm out to her house, and we do something during the day. Yes, he went to a funeral. Do you think you'll ever get married? It's nice being independent. She's at her house, I got mine. It's nice being independent. Who knows? Hmm. You have kids? Yes. My wife and I have tried to have children for a long time, and the doctor 
had a, a girl that was uh, going to give a child for adoption. He thought we might be interested, so we agreed and we adopted a little girl. And a year later, he had the same problem, and so we adopted a little boy. And later on, he had the same problem, and we were going to adopt a little girl, but she changed her mind, so we said we settled with the two children. Today, my son lives in Portsmouth, and my daughter lives in South Portland. I have four grandchildren and two great-grandchildren. How important is family to you? The whole thing's important. I mean, once you get my age, if it weren't for the family, you'd really be alone here in the world. Yeah. You know, and, and there are people like that. They're, they're on, this is it. This is the end. I'm curious if the kids, well, your son and daughter must be, what, in their 70s now? So are they protective of you in any way, or do they know better? <laughs> they, they, they call me. And my son came and gave me a new television. And back in... When I was in the 80s, he got me into computers and things, so I had my own laptop. And so you've just given me another key, and that is always be open to learning new things, even technology, because there are some people who will say, oh, my God, I don't want to even touch that. I can't begin to understand it. I lease cars, so I get a new car every three years, and you can't believe there's the computer in that thing. If you didn't know computers, you can't, can't drive anymore. You can't operate the controls. But it didn't stop you. Well, nothing stops me. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go back in time. You were born in when? 1922. You were born in 1922, here in Maine? I was born in a birthing home in South Portland. And many, many, many years later, we had an apartment on the same street that I was born in. <laughs> ah, interesting. And you were the oldest in the middle, the youngest? I was the youngest. I had two sisters. One was 10 years older. And the other one was 12 years older. Wow. So they probably babysat me, but I don't remember. And they lived to be older? They died at 95 and 96. Okay, so you all got the longevity gene. Right, right. <laughs> definitely, definitely. What about your mother? My mother was 80-something when she died. She was living with my sister. Mm -hmm. But I, th I think she was 80-something. Okay. But the family's kind of separate over the years once my father left. Right. You started to tell me that before we turned on the tape recorder. When you were how old? Five years old? When I was five years old. My father had been a railroad engineer and made good money, I guess. But then he took into doing some real estate work. And somehow or other he got into trouble because when I was five, overnight he was gone. And nobody seemed to know where he went. And mother admitted she didn't know where he was. So she was left with uh, three children. And did your mother work? Outside the home? Not, not at the time she didn't. So he just up and left her? Right. Didn't leave her a pack of money or a note? Or? Nothing. Whoa. So she immediately got my two, two sisters into those private homes as helping people bring up their children. And from then on, they, they were gone from me. And she took me out to Gorham, Maine. And she paid $5 a week for me to live there. And I lived there until the end of the fourth grade. So you boarded with a family in Gorm. Man and the wife. She paid the five dollars and they took care of you. Did you have to work for them? I was only five. I just became a member of the family and it was a house in the, in the middle of town and we actually had a back house in the back, two, two holes. That's what <laughs> we do. They had no, had uh, my own bedroom. And that's the way I lived it until I uh, moved to Portland doing the same thing for the fifth grade. 
Did you ever live with your mother again? Yeah, yes, I did. I'm, I'm, you're going ahead of the story a little bit. I'm sorry. <laughs> I apologize. I came back. I came back to Portland and boarded with a, a retired school teacher, and I stayed with her until I got to uh, high school. And when I got to high school, first year of high school, my mother uh, began housekeeping, and she and I lived together. She worked as a uh, cafeteria during high school, and I went to during high school, and in the afternoons, I worked in the uh, uh, First National Grocery Store during Center every afternoon and Saturdays. And Sundays they were closed in those days. Do you have any memories of the first family you lived with? Oh, yeah. He uh, worked in the mill down in Westbrook. He took a little of the train that went down by the house. They had a one-car train. He took that every morning to work. Every night he came home. We had chickens. I had a, a collie dog. His wife had a heart problem, had medicines. One time I went to the drugstore, got the medicine, on the way home, it fell out of the bag and broke. And it scared me so that I took off down the railroad tracks and walked to uh, Portland. My mother was living with a woman that she was taking care of. And I, for some reason or other, I knew where exactly where she mm -hmm. lived. But I was able to walk down the railroad tracks to Westbrook, follow the roads into Portland, and, and find her. Meantime, back in Goron, they have a search party out. But I actually did run away, and I must have been about eight years old then. Mm -hmm. But by then, they knew you pretty well. They knew that you had done it because right. something was wrong. Right. Yeah. So it sounds like it was a good home that you were in. I, I thought the home was perfect. There was nothing, except the, the woman was uh, partly ill, so she wasn't capable of doing all the work herself. But other than that, I was fed well and kept well until my mother moved me to Portland. And no problem. Do you know why she moved you to Portland? I think maybe to be nearer her, right? that's all I could figure out. Did you get to see her much when you were living in Gorham? She'd take the streetcar out someday and, and once in a while take me back into Portland, take me to the five and tens and we'd have lunch and walk around. And I guess she'd probably put me on the streetcar back to Gorham. By yourself? Yeah, and then I'd go back home again. <laughs> <clears throat> well, that certainly probably helped build your character. Right. And I'm glad that you were in a good home. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, very good. I have no complaints. Did you stay in touch with those people even after you left? Do you remember? No, no, I didn't. No, I didn't. So in Portland, you lived with another family. On Revere Street. And was that a good situation, too? That was a very good situation. I was older then. I was going to the uh, fifth grade, and I'd go to school every day and on uh, Stevens Avenue. There was, there was fifth grade to sixth grade, junior high school, and junior high school all in a row. Portland on Revere Street, I remember the railroad track there. In those days, they used to put down the gate. Then they'd hang a lantern on the gate so cars coming back and forth. But at nighttime, no, they were there. So I got down there and knew the gate tender. And he used to put down the gate, and I used to hang the lanterns on the gates. Oh, that's fun. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I went to school there every day, had friends. And by the time I got to, to high school, I was living with my mother. And where did you and your mother live? We lived up near Daring Center, not too far from the high school, so we could both go to school every day. She worked, and I was in school. I worked in the, in the store right across the street where the church was, was the store I worked in. It was the First National. It used to be AP in those days, and the First National, and I worked in that one. Just the manager and myself. And uh, in those days, you went around with the, all the shelves, and you, if each person wanted something, they showed you what they wanted. You put it down, put it on the counter, 
and you took one of those big paper, brown paper bags, you listed all the stuff on there. If they had 20 items, you had 20 numbers, you, you added it all up yourself, got a total, went back to the cash register, we took the money, ran the cash register to total the juke total, gave them the change, and that was it. But in those days, you, you, you sold the, the vegetables in bulk, you sold the cheese in bulk, the butter was in quarter pound packages. I remember those because the poor widows used to come and buy one of the quarter pound packages in those days. But I worked in there all through high school. Far cry from today, when you just go in there, you can pay. Know, you can pay for things with your phone right, now. Yeah, right. sure. Imagine a, a, a high school kid adding up the whole column of figures, and everybody agreed to it. And they give you the money, go off the cash register. So all the cash register would just take the money. Thank God you're trustworthy. Thank God I could add. <laughs> Thank God you could add, that's right. So you graduated from during high school? Yes. When I was 17, I went down and joined the National Guard. Because not having a father, I never got any learning from, from what father would give me. So I figured if I went down and joined the National Guard, I might get some kind of training. So I joined the Guard when I was a, a, a junior in high school. Because my mother probably had to sign for me. I graduated in during high school in June of 1940. In September, I went to camp in Fort Williams for the summer, three weeks. In September, they called the National Guard into federal service. So I was now in the Army on September 16, 1940, stationed in Fort Williams as a private. So you, you were stationed in the Army out at Fort Williams? In Fort Williams. In Fort Williams. And what did you do there? We were the Coast Artillery. In those days, there was a Coast Artillery and an infantry, National Guard outfit in town. We had 12-inch guns to defend the harbor against, if it was a war, we would defend the harbor against the enemy. Were you ever in a position when you were at Fort Williams to have to defend the coast? No, because the war wasn't even declared. This was in 1940. Okay. And I'm in the service in, in 41 when Pearl Harbor came. I was already in the service for over a year. And the uh, Germans were offshore with submarines at some time, but was there any shooting going on in Portland or Portland Harbor? And at some point then, you were shipped out though, right? You left Fort Williams. Where'd you go? I'll tell you how I got out. I was in, I was a staff sergeant. I would have been there forever for the whole war. I decided the war was going along without me. They needed me. So I applied for a... Uh, course in, for engineering. And I had read constantly, so I knew all the tools that were used. I knew what they did. I took all the exams, went down to the University of New Hampshire, took all the examinations they had, passed them all, and they sent me to Norwich University and up at the military academy up in Vermont. That's how I got out of Fort Williams. So I went up there to college to be an engineer. Well, I took a commercial course in high school. So when it came to all the technical things there, I was just lost. Hmm. Actually, I, I, I had been a, a staff sergeant and had to take up back to private to go to college. So I ended, I, I ended college, I get to the office there, and they say, well, now you're a platoon, platoon leader. You've got the first platoon, and this fellow here's got the second platoon. So here we are now, I'm a private. Even though I'd been a staff sergeant before and knew what I was doing, I'm still only a private, and I'm a platoon leader. After being up there about five months, I flunked out. I, I couldn't do it. Yeah. So they sent me down to South Carolina to a, a repo depot. Say and that again. I want to make sure I get that right. Repo depot? Replacement depot. Uh -huh. And uh, 
they put me in an outfit in, in Fort Davis, South Carolina, I think it was. Anyway, they put me in an anti-aircraft outfit as a company clerk. And I worked with the adjutant, and I stayed a private. And I was there quite a while before, this is 1943. We're preparing to go overseas, of course. Eventually, we ended up in convoys to Fort Dix, New Jersey. Spent the part of the winter in Fort Dix. Used to go into New York and see all the shows being in the service. Hmm. Finally, it took, I think, six of us and sent us as an advanced party to England. That was one of the six. Went across on the um, Mauritania cruise ship and landed in England. We got there, and then the rest of my outfit was to follow afterwards after we got quarters wrong, got everything situated. Then they arrived in England. We stayed in England from, that was January of 1944. And we stayed in England, all our equipment, all our guns and stuff, anti-aircraft guns, training, and then the personnel and guns kept coming in and coming in until June the 6th is when they invaded France. And my outfit got their orders, um, I think about June the 7th, to load up on a cargo ship and go across the English Channel. And on the 12th of June, we landed on the shores of France. And I think the next day we went down the side of the ship on like a big float. They, they put the, the, the trucks on it, and then we went ashore. We were able to drive from the float up, up through the water up on the beach and go ashore. This was June the 13th, or the 12th, whatever it was. And of course the war had moved back inland by then. That's quite an experience. It is. I mean, you're, you're, you're telling it to me so calmly, and I'm trying to imagine what it must have been like for you in the moment. I was 22 years old, and I was still a private. And the, the battalion sergeant major got a bad back. So he was no longer with the outfit. So they said to me, you're the new Italian sergeant major. <laughs> so that meant that you had a different set of responsibilities. Right. Don't say what they were. Everybody had a job, and we all did a job. And when you landed, then what happened? Did you ever see any combat? We were never on the front line. We were destined to, to, to protect the artillery. And the artillery is always back here. And the infantry is up here doing the dirty work. Okay. So although we were, we were striped by the German planes, and I've been bombed, and we could hear the shells going both ways. When they when we fired our guns, they gave the shells going that way. When they fired their guns, the shells going yeah, this way. way. Pretty frightening situation yeah, to be in. Every day we would set up our, our, our headquarters. We'd stay there until the, the front moved forward to one, and we'd move up to the next place, mm -hmm. where the artillery stayed always at a certain, where the guns would shoot. So we was always with them. Because as, as we move up, of course, the war has been ahead of us, so now there's still bodies there, there's still imagery still just a, a little ways ahead. And we're either moving into a building, some somebody's house. We, we, we used to sleep in barns. We used to sleep in houses. We used to, we had a pup tent. It was two shelter halves. We took the shelter half and made a bedroll out of it, had the bedding inside. So at nighttime, we, we would sleep no matter we were, in a, in a house, or if we had a puff tent, we'd sleep in a puff tent. As I said, we slept in barns. Whatever was available for us to get up the undercover. 
but we're behind the lines so that we're not actually have anybody shooting at us. No, but it sounds like you were in a risky situation. Well, yeah, you had the airplanes striking you, and you had the, 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 their artillery shooting at us, too. But Yeah. Were you frightened? We were young, and young take things differently. We, we had a, a major who was probably in his 30s or something. And every time there'd be an air raid or something, he'd run down cellar. Well, we'd go out and look and see where the plane was, but we'd, we'd watch him. Because whenever there was a German plane coming, you could hear it because all the anti-aircraft guns would be firing at him. Hmm. Then you could see him flying across, and you could see the anti-aircraft fire uh, at him. Because it's all, the anti-aircraft is always, so many, so many rounds of lighted up is the name for it. And then the bombers coming back would fly back over us, and we could see the ones that were damaged and mm -hmm. the whole thing. So when we see a dogfight. Right. Well, there'd be two planes up there, and we'd move across so far. So you could watch that sometimes? Right. Hmm. And we shot down a few, we shot, as I said, we shot down the 1,000th German plane shot down in the war. It was done by my outfit. And were you on the ground when you shot it down? Yes. My outfit has guns on the ground that they shoot at planes. With. Okay. And, and, and we were shooting at low-level planes. There's another outfit shot with with Andy with guns that won't, that the shell exploded uh, miles up in the air hmm. to get the bombers. Okay. But the fighters were down low, and that's the ones you were shooting at. Well, so you went from Omaha Beach in France through Belgium, right, and Germany. And Belgium was like being in Maine. We, we, the pine trees and things that you think you go right back in Maine, and, we, and at one time we had snow in the same place. And so we went from France, from Belgium to Germany, and I got trench foot because they didn't bring up overshoes to the front. So with trench feet, your feet turn black if it gets bad enough. But anyway, so they, they sent me down to a small first aid area. It was parallel of the line. We're up here. I'm, I'm down here parallel of the line down here in a small hospital. Hmm. And you, you lay on the bed with your feet unclothed, and if you lay there long enough, it all goes away. So the whole place was just four guys with trench foot. Your feet get wet and damp. We never take your shoes and stocking off because if the enemy broke through, you don't run around your bare feet. So you never take your shoes and stocking off. And that way, they, they stay damp. Well, and, well, and you have had no repercussions. It hasn't come back to haunt you. No, there's a story goes along with that. <laughs> so they sent me all the way down arrow parallel the main line. To a, to a place where nothing's going on. Everything, there's some outfit that just moved in. They're new, they're not worried about them. We were in there and all of a sudden they start coming in and telling us about they've seen a, a, a tiger tank here, there's gunfire going on there. So they figured we better move back. So they take everybody and put them in ambulances and they move us all the way back. And what happened was the German army, this is the Battle of the Vows, the big Battle of the Vows. This is where it started. Where I'm down there when nothing's going on. So they put us in ambulances, took us back, five different ambulances, and I finally got back to a hospital and stayed there about a week. And then I hitchhiked back to my outfit, which is on the north end of the line. So I, I, have, a, I have a beautiful thing in the, in the, it's in the museum that they uh, being in the Battle of the Vows. Hmm. By the end of the war, you were in Czechoslovakia? Right. Mies, Mies. The Russians were coming from the other direction. That's when they met us there, Czechoslovakia. The war was over by then. When the war ended, in, and, we, and we were in Mies, Czechoslovakia. And you were discharged in October 1945. Right. 
When you were discharged from the Army, did you come back to Maine and go to college again? Right. Where'd you go? I went to Northeastern Business College. Look, Danforth and High, which right there in the corner was the Children's Hospital, and we were right next door to it. And my sister had lined me up with a nurse. But then somebody else came along. Well, yeah, then uh, after they started dating a girl that was going to college. With you? Me, yeah. And what was her name? Her name was Betty, B-E-T-T-I-E. I lived on Concord Street with my sister, and she lived on Lincoln Street, I think. I used to give her a ride home. And one thing led to another. When did you get married? 1950. So you were dating for a couple of years? Yes. When, when I came from the service, my mother was living with my sister in Portland, and so I, I lived up in the uh, third floor with her, too. So she had us living with her and her two children and her husband working. Well, I'm going to get back to Betty, but I want to continue on this journey first because you've got a lot of volunteering that you've always volunteered. Volunteering for Maine Health is not a new thing for you, my goodness. Mm-hmm. All right, so you volunteered for the Maine National Guard. You did traffic control in Biddeford during those fires in 1947. Right. Then, in 1950, you volunteered for the Civil Air Patrol, and that's when you learned how to fly? No, I, no, I, take, I, I took flying lessons before that. Okay, when did you fit that in? Being single and, and doing nothing, I decided I wanted to learn how to fly, so I went out to Kenny Bunk and uh, took flying lessons. <laughs> I, I think that it would be so exciting to be a pilot. It was, and, and you're up there, eventually you're, you're, you're all by yourself up there. Cause yeah. you're, at the beginning of it, you're flying with somebody that teaches you to fly. You solo, and the solo you're going to fly from here to Orono or someplace by yourself, and you come back. Then somebody gives you a test. Now you have a license. Now you can fly anybody or anything with a single engine. So while I was taking my lessons, and when I was taking solo lessons, I took off from uh, Kenny Vaughan. There's a thunder shower coming out in the distance. And then what should have taken off? A thunderstorm is coming out. I'm flying around up there, and I think, well, it's getting kind of close. I better come down. Well, when you fly... You always take off into the wind. That helps the plane to come up. The thunderstorm changed the, the, the direction of the wind, so now the wind's coming from this direction. And I'm trying to land the same way I took off, which was this direction. Well, instead of landing, I can't get down because it's, I'm landing downwind, and I'm going faster than what I was. <laughs> you live to tell the story. <laughs> well, I had to come down. I knew I, I couldn't stay up. So once I got started down, see, see, I, I couldn't really slow down. I just kept, it has brakes in There was brakes after break, the two wheels there. But between the brakes and having the engine shut down and the whole deal, I'm, I'm flying down between the planes who were stacked like that, and I finally stopped. But I'm sure the instructor figured, I'm going to hit those planes head on. He's going to lose them. Never mind me. He's going to lose them. He was worried more about the planes than he <laughs> But I should have known better because... But, but, but he should have known better, going up in the thunderstorm, the wind direction does change, and it changes exactly opposite where I took off. So I'm going to land, naturally, I, I always land the same way you take off. There's nothing like learning a lesson the hard <laughs> way, because you certainly learned 
something very, right. very valuable. My goodness, what a harrowing tale that was. But when you're flying small planes, you fly watching the ground. There are signals that come out. You can fly on a signal, beep, 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 which mm -hmm. tells you if you're flying left or right of it. But normally, you're looking at the ground. You've always set up a course uh, by a compass, so you know what, what your course is. So by following that course and watching the ground, you can fly anywhere. Well, we always flew to Chicago. We didn't fly a course except by the ground. There is no signal that says you start with Portland and it'll get you in Chicago. You just set it on a, on a map, get your compass heading, mm -hmm. and fly it. And just fly and you're it. in Chicago. We used to land at Lakefront Airport in Chicago with that little plane. No computers. <laughs> we got there. We did, we did it two or three times. Um, how many years did you fly? I, I, when I left King Cole Foods, I stopped flying because it was his airplane. So I, I must have flown for I, I worked here for him 11 years. I don't know, I, must, I didn't fly very long, six years maybe. Because the plane was there, and once I left there, I didn't have any plane any longer. I had no interest to fly. King Cole. King Cole I, Foods. I have to tell you that back in the day, King Cole potato chips were my absolute favorite. <laughs> Seriously, they came in those big tins. Right. So, well, when I was in business college, when I got ready to graduate, the college usually finds you a job. Mm -hmm. And they came to me and wondered if I wanted to take a job with King Cole Foods as office manager. I said, sure, I'm all done here. So and it was two, there were two partners. It was John Hayes and Norm Cole. And they broke up. And Norm Cole agreed not to start in business again, but he did. But anyway, so I, I went with King Cole. There was no office manager there at all, just me. And then the accounting company taught me how to be an, an office manager as far as the accounting went. Mm -hmm. And the rest I learned just by being there. Yeah. So I was the, the office manager for 11 years, and I had a woman assistant. And then you went where after that? Then, then my wife saw an ad in the paper for Merrill Transport. And she thought I should try for it because it would pay more money than I can call it. And would it be doing similar work? They were looking for an office manager. So right. you took that job? Well, the time I saw the ad and stuff, and I decided I better apply. I went up and somebody told me there, well, they had been doing this for, had long lines outside the door for the day before. And so I was kind of a, a journey come lately, but they took my application anyway, and I talked with their accountant. And I got a call that Mr. Merrill was interviewing three of the applicants. So I come in and interview with Mr. Merrill, had a nice talk with him, and went home and found out I got the job. Nice. <laughs> and were you the office manager for the entire time you were there? No, no. I, I was the office manager for two or three years, and I began to do more than office work. And eventually we hired an office manager, and I took over as traffic manager. Ah. And eventually, Mr. Merrill moved upstairs to put another story on the building. He moved upstairs, and I moved into his office with his desk and a big mirror on the wall and the whole deal. So that's, that's pretty cool. And I, as the office manager, I became a vice president. So you were vice president of? Merrill Transport. Not bad. No. Not bad at all. And did you work there until you retired? Yeah, I retired. You retired from Merrill Transport. Right. I have a book here that they gave me, this book they gave me on retirement. This company put out a magazine every month, mm -hmm. and they, they took all the magazines and made up a book for me. Nice. And one of them was right up on me. How long had you been there? I was with Nero for 29 years, and I retired at the age of 65 
and they gave me a big retirement fund. They had a big orchestra. And I had a retirement book there, but I, I think my son took it. But I had a big retirement fund yeah, hmm. in the uh, Eastland Hotel. Big deal. What year was that that you retired? 1987. When you retired, you were living in Biddeford? No. I had a cottage in uh, Biddeford. Okay. And before I retired, we moved out there. The kids had all gone. They, mm. one, one got married, and Timothy was in, in college, I think. So just the two of us. So we, we sold our house and moved to the cottage and winterized it and moved to uh, Hills Beach. Is Hills Beach down by the, the college, by UNE? Yeah, yeah, you have to go to the college to get to my beach. Huh. You do today, you have to drive down to the, the campus. Do you still have the cottage? Is it still in the family? No, we sold the cottage to buy this. <laughs> <laughs> Your kids didn't hold it against you? No, no, they were busy with their own lives, so that was fine. So you then sold the cottage and you bought this condo up here on the Eastern Promenade. And right. that was in the 80s, did you tell me? We've been here for 30 odd years now. And after you retired and you were living here, you both volunteered, right? Right. At Maine Medical. Yeah. And you were telling me earlier about all the different jobs that you held, the right. volunteer jobs. Right. And she did the, the flower box. Yeah, she was a designer. Well, there's a lot of things that I see that she's made oh, yeah. here. Oh, yeah. She, all the needlework. Yeah. Well, she and I hooked rugs. I got hooked rugs here that she and I made after I retired. <laughs> so you and your wife volunteered together at Maine Medical Center. Right. But she got sick. She got Alzheimer's disease, right? Yes. Did she have it for a long time? before? Two years. One year, she's, she lived right here with me, mm-hmm. and then she fell. So we had to put her in a nursing home in uh, Falmouth. Sedgwood? Sedgwood, yeah. I'd like to talk a little bit about your wife's Alzheimer's. You told me her name was Betty. Right. One thing happened before she got, before coming down with Alzheimer's, she had a bleed, and, and the blood blood across in her head. There's two parts of the brain there. You hit one side, so that side of the brain was inactive. So. I was taking her to, to learn things all over again. Did she have a fall, or did she have no, a stroke? It just bled. How did you know that something had happened? How did she know? Did she pass out, or did she I suddenly? Don't I don't remember, except okay. uh, she went to the hospital because of it. It sounds like she might have had some kind of a stroke. Well, it's not, it's not because with stroke, nothing was paralyzed. It's just her memory went. Hmm. If she was living here, she could do, do things, but I was taken to treatment things where the first thing they had to do was teach her what a pencil was, teach her all the stuff the brain had learned and she'd forgotten. So it was, it sounds like it was an overnight thing almost. It was, yeah, it just happened. When that bleed happened, it happened. And this happened before the uh, Alzheimer's. So I was just going to ask you that. To the point um, that she was back volunteering at the time she began to get worse. Oh. And it changed to, to Alzheimer's. Okay. So she had the bleed. Yeah. She lost her memory. Yeah. But she got it back. She was, she was able to. She it back. She was teaching her again. And she was able to come back and work in the hospital. And where were they teaching her? Do you remember? Did she actually go to like New England rehab or someplace like that? Yeah. There was rehab and, and, and different things. So it worked for her for a while. She went back to volunteering, but then her memory started yeah. to deteriorate. Yeah. She, she wasn't doing things. She should be doing right. Hmm. So then we decided that something was going on. It must have been really, really hard for you to see your wife 
lose her memory and to get worse. I used to, even though uh, she was here, living here, I used to still uh, volunteer because I could hire somebody to come in and stay with her while I was at the hospital. Because you need a break. It must have been such a stressful time for you. I went to her every day. Every day she was in the nursing home, I went in and see her. And she, she knew where I was, but that's the extent of it. Hmm. I'd stay with her for a while, and I couldn't get away from her. I had to sneak out to get away. You talked about feeling lonely when we first started our conversation. That must have been really lonely for you, because she'd been your partner for oh, all yeah. those years. Yeah, it's, it's bad. And actually, she ended up with pneumonia, and then she went in hospice. And I, when she was dying, I, they knew her, so they, they called me. And, and actually, one of the uh, workers from Sedgwick came in with me, and we were both with her when she died. That's, that's the hard part, though. That's... How do you say goodbye? Yeah, that's really, really hard. You never live it down. And you don't forget her, and, and, you, and you, you go on, and you, you just keep living your life. And as I said, you just have to do things as you, that you were doing and add to it. That's all. You just, there's a memory there, but you have to forget and, and leave it, drop it. Because you could drown in it, couldn't you? People do. People do. I, I had a beautiful picture of it, but I, I couldn't. That wasn't the thing I could do, was just start and see that. Hmm. that. That didn't help me any. Hmm. She was a beautiful woman. And we were the best of friends. After your wife died, you volunteered at the nursing home that she had been yes, in? Yes, they were so kind to her that I said, I, I owe you something. I, but I found out that if some of the patients could play cards. So I used to play cards with them. One guy was a veteran, and he and I were in France at the same time, but in different places mm -hmm. and in the different outfits. But he and I would play cards until he got to the point he couldn't play anymore. Then they set me up with another woman. I played cards with her for quite a while, and then she got to the point she couldn't play anymore. One more person who always played the piano and played Christmas songs. That's all she knew, but she, so I played cards with her. And these people would beat me, I mean, as far as cards go. And then they changed management. And even though they were trying to look, find another patient for me, I could see there was no effort in it, and they really weren't interested. So we parted company. Mm -hmm. Well, so one of the keys, you've given us lots of keys. <laughs> A major key is to keep busy. You continue to keep busy. You continue to connect with people. Do you ever feel lonely? No, because I started out lonely. I didn't have any family. When I was growing up, I had a family around, but no, nothing. most people grew up with the mother and father and the whole thing. I grew up with different people, so I was never, I never lonely. I made my life as I went. Wow, I never even thought about that. Never even thought about that. You know what it feels like to be lonely. Oh well, yeah, but I never was destitute in it. Never let it overcome my living. Hmm. I was always a happy child, so, so I, you can't be happy and be lonely. Well, you do seem to have that innate personality, like we were talking about earlier, right. optimistic. Right. You tend to see the bright side of things. Right. What makes it a good day for you? I tell you the best part about volunteering is all the people that come in that house, you, you'll be surprised how many of them compliment me on my smile, on being there. It's just 
makes you feel good. I should be paying them. What's been the hardest part about getting older? The fact that you're going to die. That's the hard thing to say, isn't it? But that's, that's the hard part. It's going to end. You enjoy life. Yeah. Well, tell me, you can't get to 98 without having a little bit of wisdom in you, and you have shared tons of wisdom with us. But I think I'd like to leave people with your pearls. <laughs> <laughs> what advice would you give anybody at any age about how to live? Well, number one, they want to live honestly. They don't have anything in their background that's going to come back and haunt them, which it does years later. And it's not hard to live that way. You're going to live to love your neighbor, and you're going to live to keep busy. And that is your pearl of wisdom about living to be 98 and you're working toward 112, is to keep busy. <laughs> right. And in the spirit of keeping busy, as soon as I leave, you're going to hightail it. Whoops. Is that your girlfriend calling? I don't know. It may be a scam. I get quite a few of those. Don't it's, you hate it? <laughs> I know. You just don't answer them. You got caught in the grandson deal, though. Oh, you got scammed? Yeah. How long ago? Last year. I was working over at Falmouth. Mm -hmm. And I got so deep into it, finally, they got wise that there's something going on. And the guy gave me instructions how to go to Walmart and get the card and the whole deal. And they said, we had a scam like that. Last week, somebody got stuck. And I told him where my grandson was working. They called him at his office and found out he was all right. So we ended the whole thing right there. It sounds so real. The background, they said they were from the police department. I forget what, what city it was in. The whole thing, and, and, and my son had been in an accident. There was DUI involved. He didn't want his father to know. So he was trying to keep it quiet. The whole, the whole story. Wow. And I, I took a hook, line, and sinker. <laughs> well, because you let your emotions... <laughs> right, you do. You think it's your grandson, and he's in trouble, and you don't want his father to know, and there's money involved in the whole deal. How much money did they want? They didn't want too much money, but maybe $500 or something. It wasn't a lot of money. But still, that's pretty elaborate for them to go through that. Though. Yeah, I have enjoyed talking with you so very much. Thank you for this interview. I've loved it. And as I shut the door behind me, where are you going? You and Lucy, are you going out to lunch? We probably have lunch at her house. We eat out twice a week, and then we eat at her house. All right. Well, have a wonderful time. Thank you. This is Diane Atwood. You've been listening to my conversation about more than just aging with Jim Martin. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made possible by Avida of Stroudwater, a memory care community, and Stroudwater Lodge, an assisted living community, both in Westbrook, Maine. You'll find out more about them at northbridgecos.com. If you enjoyed my conversation with Jim Marden, please share it with a friend, and be sure to visit my blog, Catching Health, at catchinghealth.com. Until next time, may you be safe, may you be well, and may you be happy.